Mario's Sunday Roast on Today FM. David Quinn, thanks for joining me on Mario's no Sunday Roast. You're here because you'd, you'd, you'd normally be at Mass. Correct, and usually would be at Midday Mass. Uh, but of course, you can't go now uh, because of the COVID restrictions and the whole country's in Level 3. And under Level 3, all places of worship get closed except for private prayer. And so we are, in fact, the only country in the whole of Europe where you can't go. Mm. Uh, so places like Brussels, Madrid, Paris are kind of COVID hotspots at the moment. Um, and you can go to mass, synagogue, church, mosque. Um, the likes of Brussels is a very big, uh, a very big Muslim population, in fact, because they know all these places are safe so long as they're maintaining social distancing and all that kind of thing. And they're kind of being led by the evidence. And the evidence is these are not risky places to be going to. So they're letting them continue to go. And for some reason, we're the only country in the whole of Europe that uh, has forbidden this. Which is kind of amazing to me because uh, if places of worship were a risk factor, then you could um, you could buy it. Then if 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 these were super spreader kind of places, then you'd buy it. But in fact, since places of worship opened up again on June twenty ninth, I think out of all the thousands upon thousands of masses and other acts, you know, public acts of worship which have taken place since then, I think there's been one outbreak. That's it. There's been a few dozen of restaurants, a few dozen of pubs, lots to do with sport events, and obviously the great majority because of big house gatherings. So why would you shut them down? And that's why no other European country has decided to do it. So we're the only European country. Yeah, and what correct. about the world, is there? Uh, I, I think there's a couple of states in America, I think maybe California, uh, but I, like, I wouldn't swear to that. But I mean, there's places in the, in the world where, you know, you permanently can't attend mass or most public worship North Korea um, <laughs> Saudi Arabia obviously you can go to mosque in Saudi Arabia but, but like you can't do anything else I think Israel is in total lockdown at the moment that may include all places of worship but it's exceptionally rare um, so you know Neff had made this recommendation the government accepted it it's in level 3 in level 3 you can still go to the gym uh, in one version of level 3 um, you can still go to restaurants you can get your hair done uh, you can go shopping um, I mean, you go into a shop, there's quite a few people in the shops, but they're deciding that's not a big enough risk. So I think there was advance without evidence. Um, I went into uh, the Neffet press conference actually a few weeks ago, because I've, I've gone to quite a few of them with my kind of Sunday Times hat on. And I asked them about this and they said, well, basically, we're just being extra cautious and we're trying to reduce risks in these parts of society in order to allow us to take risks in these other places by which they mainly mean school. Okay, but it's obviously really, really important. Um, but I did ask them, but I said, I said, yeah, but I mean, we're a continent of 500 million people and we're literally the only place in the whole of Europe doing this. And I presume that, you know, the German government gets excellent scientific advice as well and all these other governments all over Europe. And I said, no other group of experts has advised this. Okay. And so anyway, they just yeah. decided they'd rather be You're safe not than sorry. Mass. Not a mass. Okay. Um, here with Mario. Here with Mario. Yeah. Um, Father Mario. And... Just before we came on the radio when we were during the commercial break, you mm. sat down in your chair there and I went, it's great to have you on the show, David. Thanks for coming in. You said, cue hundreds of thousands of people turning their radios off. <laughs> Why did you say that to me? Well, because like, um, you get people that turn it up on my Twitter feed uh, saying things like, oh, I, I hear David Quinn on programme X, Y, or Z. I'm turning off now. All right. Now I know that can't happen much. All right. Because if it did, I'd be on nothing. All right. Um, but you do get this kind of reaction or I'm not buying the Sunday Times anymore because David Quinn writes for it. You know, this kind of thing. Uh, so that would be a kind of um, meme, if you like, that would run right through uh, my social media feeds um, 
continually when somebody would give me a platform. So, I mean, I'm obviously joking, but nonetheless, it is something that people actually do say. No, it was tongue-in-cheek, but it yeah. wasn't. You weren't joking entirely. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, listen, I, I asked you on, and because I wanted to have a little conversation with you about how people change their mind, or try, I wanted just to test my own self, mm. to challenge my own views. Because, mm. ostensibly, forgive me if I put a label on mm. this, so f- I'm, I'm what you might call a classic uh, mm. liberal. Mm. I'm not... 100% liberal in every area but mm. I tick most of the boxes yeah. and I'm only doing this for safety mm. um, so would it be fair to say if you'll allow me to do that mm. to you that you are a classic conservative correct alright well you actually you've been quite emphatic about that fair mm. enough now so David I want to ask you because um, you're so you're, you're, you are so eloquent and articulate and that's why um, I wanted to get you on the show what is a conservative? well I mean <laughs> Conservatism is kind of an instinct, I think, to start with. I mean, it's kind of funny that um, uh, people, in terms of their points of view, whether it be liberal, conservative, or whatever, um, I think a lot of it comes down to predispositions and kind of instincts. And so, I I think the, I think conservatism um, is partly an instinct. And the instinct is, well, okay, if you're going to change this long-established practice, uh, then justify it. I mean, it's kind of the thing, if you're going to knock down a fence, find out first why it was put up, all right? Because you might find out to your bitter regret afterwards, actually, we'd forgotten the reason for that fence, and the reason for that fence was to keep something in or keep something out or whatever. Um, So, I, I... I think conservatism, in a way, is a way of stress testing a new idea. All right. So we hopefully be getting around to discussing assisted suicide a bit further on in this program. And obviously now there's a growing kind of demand for assisted suicide. So, uh, you know, the conservative instinct is to look at that and kind of think, well, okay, um, is this a good idea? Let's put it through the ringer. And I think within a society, you need people who are going to be pushing for certain changes. But you also need people who are going to be kind of critics. I think, by the way, I have a kind of uh, contrarian outlook as well. I sometimes wonder if I'd been around in Ireland, we say in the 1950s, would I have been kicking back against Catholic Church? Because I don't particularly like an unquestioning consensus. That actually kind of drives me nuts. And a lot of the time in the various things I write about and speak about, um, I'm trying to raise questions that are often not being raised at all. So at some point we might get into the whole environmental thing. And what slightly drives me batty on that one is it tends to be, you know, the kind of most alarmist predictions. I'm not denying climate change. It's happening. Global warming is happening. It's man-made. But there's all kinds of predictions made about just how bad it'll get. And um, it seems to me an awful lot of the time it's the upper end predictions which are heard nearly all the time because it makes for better headlines. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you don't hear questions been raised enough about, well, what's that going to cost? Like, if you treble the amount of renewable energy in Ireland, what's that going to cost? And I've, I've sent questions out to various government departments about that. Okay. And I, I don't th- know. We, we, so, so, yeah, so, I, anyway, I like hmm. the stress test ideas and ask questions that have not really been asked. So I think there's a kind of contrarian hmm. instinct in me as well. Yeah, you don't like the herd. No, no, you no. Feel, you, you feel herd moving in a certain direction and that worries you. It does. It does, particularly when, you know, um, questions are not being asked really ought to be asked mm. and maybe there'll be adequate answers to the questions but you should at least ask the bloody questions mm. alright and see if there are good answers to them because look at we and did so the just property one, Dave, do you feel that there's um, not enough of this questioning in the Irish media 
I think big time. Um, Even though you yourself are given quite a lot of space. Yeah, but I mean, I'm one columnist and mm. there's only a couple of others. I mean, on the libertarian side, questioning political correctness, there'd be somebody like Ian O'Doherty, for example. Mm. Uh, I'd regard Larissa Nolan as kind of more on the libertarian rather than the conservative end. And then there's Breeder, Brian of the Irish Times and me. And then that's pretty much it. There's very few others I can think of. So it's a tokenistic almost. Uh, well, I mean, there's a few kind of isolated voices and... It's not enough to really get a debate going. No. I mean, you can sometimes, but it's it's hard to get a debate going with only a handful of voices. Right. So, David, you're a conservative then, mm. right? So you don't have me a problem with me saying that to you. Mm. But just for, I mean, now that we're taking boxes, let's just take boxes. Mm. So, for example, because I find this fascinating, mm. the way a conservative or a liberal, mm. we're, we're, la- we're labelling mm. each other, mm. for, just for the purposes mm. of argument, we all seem to fun- funnily fall into these opposing boxes. And mm. nearly all of them we tick. So, for example, mm-hmm. um, we're going to talk about assisted suicide. Suicide mm. uh, later. So assisted suicide, you are against. Against. Okay. Assisted suicide. And you're for abortion. Same. Pro life. Okay. What else? Divorce. Uh, uh, divorce. Well, I mean, I wouldn't make it illegal. Let's put it that way. Um, but I'd be. I mean, I. I mean, we live. I wouldn't. I mean, you know, people kind of wonder. Well, okay, David Quinn is against divorce, therefore he must want to made illegal. No, I don't. Okay. Not a climate change denier, but you're saying not enough questions. Uh, and asked. Not enough questioning about the kind of extreme end of the predictions, and not enough questions about the costs of it all, of the cost of you know um, having to fight it. Okay, same-sex marriage. Well, I was a campaigner against. Mm. Okay, what else? Puts, um, well, puts. I suppose you see. I mean, because one of the things you said earlier on that. That, that kind of, you said you were a contrarian and yeah. you said that you buckled against the herd and that's yeah. fair enough. But the first word that came into my mind was the inevitable word progress and change. Yeah. That we evolve as societies, yeah. we evolve as collectives, mm. as communities. And we kind of make decisions based on what's happened in the past and how it could be improved in the future. Mm. I mean, for example, in relation to same-sex marriage, mm. we basically go, this is clearly this is clearly unjust to people mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be given the same rights to mm. marry as as other people. Mm. And that's why we evolve and then we have a, a vote about it and mm. we make a decision. And that's what we might call progress. So you're, in a sense, then, you could argue, um, halting progress. Well, I mean, that would be certainly the liberal view of it. I mean, I would... I mean, liberals and conservatives hopefully are combined in uh, in one thing, which is wanting the good of society, all right? But we obviously have different views about what will lead to a better society. So, I mean, it tends to be, you know, common among conservatives to think uh, that family is very important. Because mm. we're all raised, in, well, nearly all of us are raised in families. So the welfare of the family is obviously extremely important. Um, and so to have kind of healthy, flourishing families is very important. I think it's important, for example, um, that as many children as possible are raised by a loving mother and father. All right, because I think when you have the absence of a parent in your life like that, it's not necessarily brilliant. And I think it's easier when there's two parents rather than one on hand. Um, and so if you see more and more and more kids being, you know, growing up without their dad around the place, I think on the whole, that's not a good thing. And so I would look at something like that and I'd be uneasy if you live in a society where, you know, there is this, you know, rapidly growing number of kids uh, who don't have the benefit of a father around. And you see, these things are always 
incredibly sensitive to raise because you're accused of being offensive, as we know, which is the kind of classic thing that you're saying, now you having a go at uh, lone parents. Well, no, I'm just saying, I'm not saying yeah, that. You see, I'm just saying it's good to have a father yeah, around no, as no, well. No, exactly, exactly. See, this is, uh, that's what I disagree with, that idea that you're being offensive mm. because I don't think you are being offensive. Mm. I think people who are on your Twitter feed and preventing you from speaking in certain places and preventing colleagues of yours from speaking in certain places are, are forgetting that you are on our side. You mm. are you are on our team. Mm. You are on you are, you have no intention. You you don't want to sabotage our community. Mm. This is what I, I get the I get the impression that you act in good in good faith. I hope so. Yeah. Well, what I, other what yeah. other Well, I mean but, but you see they think but, but but you see the I suppose the motive they often put down if okay so somebody decides this is so obviously progress how could you possibly be against it? And so they so then they kind of think it's because you must be mad bad or stupid. All right, because you got some self-interest at work. So um, you're against um, an older argument. You're against socialism because you benefit from the present class system. Okay, so you're bad or you're greedy. All right, and you are against the advancement of you know women, as, as somebody might put it, because you're sexist. All right, and you've got a prejudice. Okay, so they tend to ascribe to you all kinds of terrible motives uh, for the things you say. And like the abortion uh, debate will be a good example of that because ultimately you're against abortion because you want to control women, because you want women to be second-class citizens, that you're sexist and misogynistic, and so therefore you don't have any good motives, you're just full of bad motives, okay? And you might even be a wicked person. And so that tends to be the kind of accusations which get uh, made here. And like, when I look at people who are kind of pro-choice, I'm not thinking, uh, you actively want a society in which there's lots and lots of abortions because that makes you happy in some way. I mean, to me, that's just ridiculous. I completely and utterly understand the pro-choice argument. And I can fully understand where uh, pro-choice people are coming from because I think this is a private autonomous decision that affects only me and I can't be made to carry on with this pregnancy, okay? So I can see this argument. And obviously the argument I take is, well, that's a human being there and uh, you can't deliberately uh, eliminate another human life like that. But... I just think that quest, you know, starting out from a, from the assumption that the other person is full of bad will, okay, and terrible motives, is just a terrible way to uh, advance public debate. And I think this is, you know, largely behind the cancel culture. That if you're saying things like that, you can't be a good person, and you're going to be given a platform to say terrible things yes. that are going to disadvantage all kinds of all kinds of groups, yes. and therefore we're not going to give you the platform. Yes, I couldn't agree with you yeah. more, David. That's the point. You are not a bad person because you have a different belief. And I was saying this earlier on as well, and we often say it on the show. Um, opponents now in the world have been turned into enemies. Mm. So, for example, in America, the Democrats and the Republicans are no longer opponent. They're actually mortal enemies mm. at this stage, which as we may see in the next <clears throat> six weeks, may lead to, you know, a kind of almost a civil war on the streets of America mm. situation. And I'm not being um, alarmist by mm. saying that, but th that may happen. Well, there's already a fair yeah. amount of violence in American streets. All right, right now, so you said, there, you said there, for example, it's hard to get your point across, and then when you do get your point across, people think you're mad, bad, or stupid. And you mentioned a few people there, like Ian O'Doherty and Larissa Nolan and Breed O'Brien and yourself. Not many people. Yeah. And earlier on in this week, I heard uh, uh, our representatives in the Dáil, mm. Michael Healy-Ray and Matty McGrath, 
and they represent a conservative uh, a viewpoint. But they didn't do their side very much proud, pride by shouting and roaring and, and even casting slurs on Tony Holohan and his motives. Oh, well, that was and, just Matty, wasn't it? Yes. Outside the doll, yeah. Yeah, Matty. Mm. Matty and Michael Healy Ray and, uh, screaming mm. and roaring about other him. stuff. So do you think the um, the legislature, the, the houses of the of the Oireachtas, are badly served by conservative voices? Um, and if not, who are who, who's a good voice? Well, I mean, there's plenty. I mean... Like, there's plenty of that to go around in terms of all sides, because I would say that some of the, let's say, the far-left TDs in there don't cover themselves in glory either with some of the kind of fairly rabid statements that they come up with. So it's, this is not kind of just something that's exclusive to one side or the other. I think there's plenty of that kind of tendency to go around. Um, but, you know, within the doll, I mean, I think Padre Tobin is a highly articulate guy you know, the leader of Aintu. Uh, he's a fellow who takes politics really seriously. He has kind of worked out positions on practically everything, uh, even if you don't agree, that, you know, he is going to be able to articulate his position well. I think there's a lot of people in the doll of all stripes who actually don't articulate their positions particularly well. I think that they decide a lot of the time what will go down well in my constituency or what will go down well uh, nationally, uh, what yeah. sounds like a fashionable thing to say? Well, exactly. You use the word fashionable. Do you yeah. think? Do you think that people restrict themselves for expressing a conservative, an, uh, an ostensibly conservative viewpoint, for fear that it won't be fashionable, and for fear that they, even they may be cancelled? I think there's a lot of that going on. You see, if you go on a program and you're taking a point of view that's deeply unfashionable and you're likely to be labelled in all kinds of terrible ways I think it makes an awful lot of people shy to go near it particularly like if you're a politician and you want to get re-elected and you're kind of thinking well the issues of importance to me and my constituency are what's important to my constituents alright so I don't know we'll say um, uh, if you're down in the country what's happening to bee farming alright so that's the issue I'm going to you know that's, that's the hill I'm going to die on is uh, on behalf of the bee farmers and you're kind of thinking well, okay, I'm against assisted suicide or I'm against abortion and I will vote against both of those things. Uh, but I'm not really going to go out there too much on it because if I go out about assisted suicide, I'll be accused of lacking compassion. And if I come on against abortion, I'll be accused of being misogynistic. Mm. And I'll have to work out um, how to kind of, you know, make my arguments, you know, well enough to escape all those traps. Mm. And... Uh, no, I don't think I will, because okay. I think it's more important for me to do these other things. Like oh, oh, all right, well, maybe in a few minutes then we're going to get to something specific yeah. through which I'd like you to argue, something that we can look through the prism yeah. of a conservative viewpoint. Yeah. But here's one of the problems I have with conservatism. <laughs> so I'm a guy, as I said, who would be put in a liberal mm. box, right? And one of the problems I have about conservatism is that, for me, you can help me with this, right? Mm. For me, it's a kind of an ethos that believes in the individual too much. It believes in... Um, a kind of a Darwinistic social evolutionary theory that the best will rise, that the strongest will survive and that if you don't, well, hard luck, you haven't been chosen. Uh, nature hasn't chosen you mm -hmm. to survive. And so in answer to that, social democratic frameworks mm. were set up around the world to protect the... Um, uh, the, in, the 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 disabled, mm. the uh, socially alienated, the unlucky, mm -hmm. um, uh, the marginalised and, you know, the oppressed. Mm. And I believe conservatism doesn't do that. It leaves people out in the cold to die. You see, the funny thing is, um, what you're describing there as conservatism with this very individualistic mentality is kind of how I see liberalism, right? Kind of a, a highly individualistic mentality that puts the individual um, uh, front and centre of all considerations and says autonomy and choice is the most important thing and don't interfere with somebody's freedom, no matter what it does to the common good. So it's kind of funny that we're both kind of... So, okay, let's see where the common ground here is. Um, 
neither you nor I want a dog eat dog world. No. Okay. And you're nervous that conservatism will lead to that. And I'm nervous actually that a certain type of liberal individualism will lead to that. So um, the real question is uh, I guess if we just take away the labels, um, what leads to a world that's less dog eat dog and a world in which. Um, uh, people can't be so easily taken advantage of, mm. okay? And if they come into life in particular circumstances or fall into, circum- uh, cer- into certain circumstances, how do we pick them up, all right? So, do you see, the kind of conservatism I'd kind of espouse would be a sort of common good conservatism, if I can put it that way. So, why do I think the family is important? Because I think kids are more likely to benefit if they are in well-functioning, loving families, all right? And if, if there's fewer and fewer of them, I think that's going to be bad for kids. Um, why am I against this a suicide we get into this? Um, well, because I think it'll end up preying on the vulnerable, all right? Uh, we can discuss that yeah. at more length. I mean, abortion, obviously, you've got, you know, the child in the womb is completely helpless, needs to be looked after. So it is it's kind of interesting. I think the two of us both want a society that's not dog-eat-dog, but the funny thing is then we end up coming to different kind of policy conclusions a lot of the time. But I think in both cases, weirdly, the aim is the same. And we're both maybe deciding, well, you know, the dog-eat-dog view, that's conservatism. And I'm thinking, no, the dog-eat-dog view is that kind of extreme liberal individualism. Yeah, okay. 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 Uh, before we go to a break, and then we're going to talk about the specific um, item that we were going to talk about today, just to see how it works out between mm. us. Um, just one question for you. Do you mm. believe um, that a lot of money should be spent by a government on the health system, for example? Yes. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what would you think about something like the Scandinavian model, whereby a large amount of tax is paid by people, but in return... Um, they are taken care of in paternity, maternity, when they break their leg, when they're off work, when they're sick, um, when they take a break from work, etc. I have I've no issue with a uh, big public health system that works properly, that doesn't waste money. I've also no problem with a kind of mixed health system like in Germany, where there's plenty of private health care as well. And the Germans have done a fantastic job so far in, in uh, tackling COVID. Like we were sending our testing, our COVID tests off to German private labs because they had the capacity to do it. Uh, so Germany is a very mixed system. So for me, when it comes to the health system, it's what works and if a big public health system works fine if it's a mixed health system that works that's fine by me as well so I'm completely pragmatic when it comes to that Alright David we're going to take a break and we're going to <laughs> don't turn off your radios because it, it will be more interesting and less depressing than you think but we're just going to do an experiment and David wrote an article today in the Sunday Times about assisted suicide and of course he and I would probably be on completely different sides of the fence about this and we're going to discuss it straight after this break Sunday Roast on Today FM. Today FM. Anyway, I'm here with David Quinn, um, who is a, a, a hugely respected um, and conservative thinker in Ireland. And um, my opinion was that there is not enough of them heard on the radio, even though I myself am probably a liberal thinker. Mario, great to hear David Quinn on the radio without being constantly interrupted. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. And that's exactly what happens. Um, I actually turned my radio volume up rather than off. I don't have to agree with his views, but I'm interested in hearing them. Um, Mario, we have a family member working in Saudi Arabia. David mentioned, uh, talked about Saudi Arabia there. Please let your contributor know the lockdown there is very much over, although the strict rules are in place with regard to social distancing and mask wearing. The strictness and length of the lockdown when it was in effect definitely kept numbers down in the high population and the mosque. How do you wear a mask in Saudi Arabia? Do, 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 do you wear a mask under the knee, kneecap? 
That's the, the most. The men wear the uh, veils, though. Not the veils. They the, wear the head no, and, gear and so. Yeah, um, and uh, Mario, one of the best interviews I've heard on radio. Well done, David. Is right. There is not enough balanced debate in our media, and well done for playing your part, Mario. Mar- Anne-Marie, a young conservative mum. <laughs> um, okay, uh, last week I was talking, just a couple of things before we start this one, David. Uh, last week I was just talking about um, censorship of voices and not being able to do certain voices and um, the, the guy in The Simpsons um, being fired because, or being replaced um, by doing a black voice. And so he's being replaced by a black actor. I and similar, that one. And similar, yeah, and sim- Hank Azaria, and similarly yeah. he used to do the voice of Apu, and, uh, and he's, he's now embarrassed by having done Apu, isn't he? He's yes, and now he's not doing Apu, yeah. so he's stepping down. So I was kind of extrapolating from that, and I wouldn't be able to do Leo Varadkar because Leo Varadkar <laughs> is a, a mixed race uh, mm. man. So would I have to get a mixed race actor in to do him? And uh, then ultimately, would it go to I couldn't do a Kerry person because I'm not pure DNA Kerry from Kilgarvan, so I wouldn't be able to do Michael Healy Ray, etc. And I described it as kind of an intellectual sectarianism. Mm. Mm. And you used that word sectarianism mm. in the commercial break when mm. we were there. And when I think of sectarianism, I was speaking about it last week, I think of uh, Protestants and Catholics mm. living side by side in Northern Ireland, but only a hundred yards from each other, never meeting. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in sectarianism. Mm. People shut each other down. Oh, David Quinn's on the radio. I'm not listening. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, David Quinn's on that side of the road. I'm crossing that side of the road. So you never will meet David Quinn. Mm-hmm. You will never listen to him. Mm-hmm. You're just presuming that he is a person mad, bad, stupid, mm-hmm. and he is a person of ill will. Um, so that's probably what I wanted to ask you then was, um, how does Trump fit into your world? Because as horrible, as deplorable, as awful, as repugnant personally as the man is, he is responsible for creating a society in America which is... Uh, which is in many respects more conservative than it was previously. And you must be happy about that. Well, I'm not happy about Trump. I mean, Trump, his personality is just terrible. Um, you see, Trump, in a way, his personality is a policy. Okay, and I think that's what kind of horrifies uh, an awful lot of people about him because his personality is so big and so bombastic and so loud and often so obnoxious and he's so careless in what he says that his personality has actually overwhelmed his presidency. And I think that's why he's going to lose badly uh, on November 3rd. I think people who are willing to tolerate some of his policies are now thinking, you've made yourself personally too big, too central. I mean, even the ridiculous thing last week where he turns up on the helicopter, right, uh, to this dramatic music and the helicopter lands in the White House lawn and he goes up to the back and he would have flourished, takes off. Yeah, I don't think they're buying it. I don't think his fans. Some. I don't think a lot of his. I think his absolute hardcore fans are buying that, mm. but not the the ones he needs. What it was like, like it was like a Michael Bay movie. Like he expected them to, you know, you know, uh, who makes these loud bombastic action movies. I mean, that's what it was like. Something off. So Trump has become kind of the star in his own action movie. Um, and I think COVID has made him ever more kind of desperate and unhinged. He had a line before this whole COVID thing began, which was the economy is doing well, uh, and to keep me in to keep the economy going well and I think if that had kept on track he probably would have won but COVID he's been so erratic and so bad about that and this messaging has been so all over the place and some of his press conferences was so ridiculous and you know his own bout of COVID and that ridiculous reappearance at the White House and also his terrible debate with uh, Biden uh, where all his aggressive instincts got the better of him so I think he himself is bringing himself down in flames Biden barely even has to run uh, Trump is beating himself because his personality flaws are just completely beginning to overwhelm him at this stage. I think COVID has done that primarily. 
Yeah, he's saying, I, I agree. I think he's going. I think he's going to lose, and I think he's going to lose big. But that's mm. only my opinion. All right, David. Today you wrote a very, very interesting um, column in the Sunday Times about assisted suicide. Um, so obviously you are uh, mm-hmm. vehemently opposed mm-hmm. to assisted suicide. And a bill was passed. Well, it was a private member's bill, mm. and it's gone to the next stage in the doll, which will uh, usher in um, uh, the possibility of mm. assisted suicide in this com- uh, in this country. Um, so where do I stand? Yeah, oh, listen. Uh, for as for as long as I thought about it, here's mm. where I stand, and I would say to you: if somebody is in chronic pain, terminally ill, and going to die, and they are of sound mind, that they should be given the personal choice um, at some stage to be able to terminate their own life with the assistance mm-hmm. of the medical profession. And um, so, where do you stand on well, that? Well, let's again, as before the outbreak, we were kind of saying: um, uh, so, what do we have in common? We both want the good of society. All right, so, uh, you know... And the good of that person. Yeah, and you're looking kind of at conservatism and you're kind of thinking, that's dog-eat-dog. And I'm kind of looking at certain versions of liberalism and I'm thinking, that's dog-eat-dog. And by the way, it's not like I'm thinking, Mario Rosenstock has personally a dog-eat-dog mentality. It's just that maybe the effect of the policies will be dog-eat-dog in ways you mightn't recognise. Yeah. All right, uh, all right. So, I don't think that liberals are setting out with a dog-eat-dog mentality. And I, I think a lot of the policies don't lead to that either. But if you take something like this issue, assisted suicide, so what you want out of this is the ultimate good of people. And what I want out of it is the ultimate good of people. And then we arrive at different conclusions as to what does that. So, you're thinking, somebody in unbearable pain... You can't allow that, so the compassionate thing is to allow them to enter lives with a doctor's help. Okay, so the doctor will give them a, a lethal substance. And I look at this and I'm kind of thinking, and this is what the palliative care doctors have in mind as well, and they, of course, deal with people at the end of their life all the time because that's what they do. So they're thinking, this is going to put pressure on vulnerable people who already feel burdensome, already feel maybe their lives have no value, um, already feel worthless, and is going to tell them, actually, you're right to think that way. Because we as a society have just authorised this as a suicide. And um, from now on, when a person suffers from some terminal illness, or maybe just a chronic illness, um, the doctor will be obliged to tell you uh, that here's one of your legal rights, and one of your legal rights is assisted suicide. And so the reason the palliative care doctors are against this is because they think it'll actually not help the vulnerable, it will end up pressuring the vulnerable. And so we'll end up actually ironically and paradoxically and kind of perversely and unintentionally with a less compassionate society which people feel less valued. So that's the basic argument against, as I see it. What about religion, though? I mean, you are a Catholic. Yeah. And uh, you believe in God. Mm. Um, and your religion would be staunchly against uh, yeah. that as well. So how, how does that colour it? Um, well, I mean, obviously it's going to colour it to some extent, but I think the arguments which I've made exist completely independently of any particular faith or non-belief that you may have. I mean, for example, a liberal still believes in something. They believe, uh, I think, primarily in personal autonomy uh, an awful lot of the time because choice is a huge central value in many of these debates, like it was with abortion, and it is with this as well. So this is my personal choice. And so that's a value. All right, and there's a value that somebody believes in, you know, primarily for subjective reasons. And so what's my primary belief in these debates? And that's the value of human life. Okay, and you don't deliberately end an innocent human life. All right, which is what abortion and assisted suicide do. Um, but, you know, you look, you see what's going on elsewhere. And um, if you look at the Netherlands, I mean, the grounds expanded incredibly quickly from terminal illness to uh, chronic illness and depression 
and dementia and you look at the figures yeah. and the figures are there to be seen and, and they issue their reports and this is what goes on. But this and happens, This happens. sorry, just to, yeah. sorry, to, very few interruptions. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah. but I suppose this is what would be called maybe your, possibly your slippery slope ah. argument. The idea that, well, once we start here, well, what next? But does it necessarily have to be like that? Well, well, it happens again and again and again. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's not even a slippery slope. We're talking about a sheer cliff because even in this country, like I saw an interview with Tom Curran of Exit International in the Sunday Indo today and he was saying he doesn't think the Gino Kenny bill goes far enough because it only talks about terminal illness and he talks about his own wife who had a terrible chronic illness and he says she wouldn't have been covered by this so he thinks it should cover chronic illness. And if you take Exit International, which he's part of, I mean, anybody listening to this can go on the Exit International website right now and they can see, well, what are we about? And they think that anybody of sound mind should be allowed to kill themselves with, a, you know, with somebody's help, if need be. Anybody of sound mind, because this is taking the kind of autonomy, autonomy argument to its logical conclusion. I heard uh, Fintan O'Toole on radio a couple of weeks ago, he's talking about his dad, he spoke very movingly about his dad, but he admitted his dad was not terminally ill, his dad was chronically ill, and then, he, and then Fintan was asked, well, under what circumstances, what limits would you place on it? And his basic answer, if I understood him correctly, was sound mind. That's it. No illness need necessarily be there at all. And so in Ireland right now, you've got people who want to push past terminal illness almost instantly. And if you look at the Gino Kenny bill, by the way, I debated Gino Kenny on News Talk there a few weeks ago, and Gino kept insisting, sort of in the bill it says, it's only where there's unbearable illness, sorry, unbearable suffering and pain. And I said, those words are not in your bill. He said, yes, they are, but they're not in the bill. Anybody can go, it's only a 12-page bill. Just do a control F for unbearable and suffering and pain. They're not in there. And uh, you don't have to be you don't have to be within a certain time frame of death to avail of it. So it doesn't say six months or twelve months. It has no time limit. So you could be diagnosed as be terminally ill today and apply tomorrow, and fourteen days later you get your lethal substance. So this bill on its own is bad. Um, David, you were saying in your article as well that only four minutes was given in the doll to the yeah. uh, contrarian uh, opinion mm. on this. I was going to ask you: Do you think that? Um, for example, let's just take assisted suicide. Yeah. Do you think that that the 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 vast majority or the majority of feeling as represented by our public representatives uh, supports or goes against assisted suicide in reality? Well, we saw the vote in the doll last week and moving to the, se- the second stage was 81 in favour of moving to the second stage. So people like Lever Acker, Simon Harris, Helen McIntyre, Stephen Donnelly all voted in favour of moving to the second stage. 71 voted not to move at the second stage. That included people like Simon Coveney and Josepha Madigan. And she was, uh, they were voting the pro-choice side two years ago, Simon Coveney as well. So it was 81-71. So in the first stage where Gino Kenny introduced it to the doll and there was a little bit of a debate so-called, um, only four minutes out of 70 was given over to opposing yeah. voices, whereas the doll was, was more or less 50-50. Yeah. And so it's just not treating the issue with the respect it deserves mm. to give only four minutes to opposing voices. It just mm. doesn't, it, it's, it's not treating democratic debate seriously to do something like that. And it's also not treating it seriously when I think the most important voices in this debate are obviously the patients people who are suffering various conditions, but also, obviously, the doctors who are involved in end-of-life care as, as their very profession. And their voices haven't been heard sufficiently. So my own view is, um, um, if we have a proper debate, and if the palliative care you know, doctors are really properly heard by the public, and everybody understands their arguments, and still 
for their own reasons say, well, you know what, I hear your argument and I hear where you're coming from, but I still think we should have it. At least it will have been an informed decision at that point. But we can't rush into this thing and it has to be a proper debate. And so far, that's not really happening, in my opinion. David, it's 12.56 and I have to say there are absolutely tons of texts that have arrived in and to be honest with you, most of them are saying it's great just to be able to hear you speak. Thank you. Um, there aren't that many going, he's a lunatic. <laughs> there are two or three going, he's mm-hmm. completely crazy. Um, but there aren't. And it's just brilliant that you can um, get a platform to speak. David Thank Quinn, you. thanks very much for coming in. And uh, will you come in in a few weeks again? I to will. Second put some, date. Put something else through yeah. the prism. Yeah. Uh, we've had our first date. It's gone very well. You haven't turned me yet, David. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, maybe you will. Um, thanks a million for coming in. By the way, folks, Revelino, huge band in the 90s in Ireland, celebrated the release of their eponymous debut album on October 6th, 1994. The album received rave reviews and the lead single, Happiness Is Mine, had an immediate impact on radio in Ireland. Album is now to be released on vinyl for the first time. Go out and get it. Back next week, same time, same place. Mario's Sunday Roast. On Today FM. Today FM.